Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 234, Close, but no Vichy Cigar. Last time, Allied African troops had secured both coastlines just below Diego Suarez Bay. With that done, it was time to close in on Tananarive, the capital where Governor General Annette was residing. And it would be the 29th Independent Brigade that would serve as the Eastern Pincer closing in on the capital, while the East Africans came from the West. Or rather, it would be 80 men of the 29th Brigade that charged ahead down the road. The rest were to remain in Tamatave, modern-day Toa Masina, for now, to guard this vital port city. And the reason none of the 29th had to fight while coming ashore was that those Vichy troops in the area had already pulled back and taken their artillery and machine guns. Yet, they had not gone all the way back to the capital. No, they had set up again at a river crossing at Bricaville, located south of Tamatave, along the rail line to the capital. This wasn't over yet. As the capital was about 130 miles, or 209 kilometers, from Tavatave, as the crow flies, it would be an even longer trip for these men, as the road and rail line first headed south, to a point almost parallel with the capital, before it turned west. And in that distance, who knew what General Annette had in store for them? The 80 men of the 29th started out, but then stopped as there were eight roadblocks of downed trees and only the first four miles that they tried to go. And then an irony of war took place. The road the 29th was on was certainly blocked, but not the rail line, which made sense as the Vichy were still using it. So when a train came into the coastal city, Lieutenant General Festing took command of it and told his South Lanks to get aboard. Meanwhile, the Welsh Fusiliers would take the road and they would see who got to the capital first. The train, with some of the South Lanks aboard, with a unit of sappers, took off at 3 p.m., heading back to the capital. Meanwhile, the Welsh Fusiliers double-timed it down the road. Just to make sure that the track up ahead would not be destroyed, thus causing the train to crash, the first two carriages of it were filled with French railway officials. This helped the South Lanks get past a few bridges they came upon. But then the train reached the river Vohitra, and here the bridge had already been destroyed. There was nothing for it but for the men to abandon their comfortable ride, take off their boots, and wade across the river. Which would have happened anyways at some point, as the Vohitra was only the first third of the way to the capital. Putting their boots back on, the South Lanks began walking. It took a while, but by 1 a.m. they had reached the bridge at Bricaville, again where the Vichy had set up their defensive line. As it was the middle of the night, and soldiers throughout the world are known for, how shall we say, taking advantage of the night shift, the South Lanks once again removed their boots, but this time they started to tiptoe across the bridge as opposed to a river. True, there was darkness all around, but wooden planks the world over, creak and the bridge started to do just that, which alerted the Malagasy troops on watch. They jumped on their machine gun, having the enemy troops dead to rights, what being trapped on that bridge, and fired, but then stopped firing and surrendered. Honor had been satisfied. 
as no one could say for sure how the Malagasy troops would conduct themselves once the enemy showed up, the Scots Fusiliers were ordered to rush from the port city to help the South Lanks. This was obviously before the Malagasy troops surrendered. Meanwhile, the East Lanks stayed in town. Also heading to the capital were the Welsh Fusiliers, being led by A Company, along with a motor detachment. And even though this is one of Britain's proudest regiments, their mode of transport belongs in a Benny Hill montage. The men grabbed whatever means they could get to get down the road faster. Some were on bicycles, others ponies or French cars, but the wireless operators were not to be outdone as they took turns pulling a rickshaw, but the company commander outdid them all, being on the back of a rather large, beautiful horse. It was a page out of the previous century, apparently, for the Allied troops, trying to end this conflict. During all this, the Bren gun carriers of the Welsh Fusiliers anticipated to be much needed, so they came ashore the next morning, that of September 19th, and they then raced down the road. The carriers met up with the battalion at the first demolished bridge at Mauro Fadi. The engineers needed five hours, but a passable bridge was constructed and the battalion crossed over, only to be stopped not two miles down the road when they came upon the next bridge that wasn't there. Clearly, this process was going to be repeated over and over, all the way to the capital. So, Lieutenant Colonel Stockwell came up with an inspired idea. Instead of having all the engineers working on a bridge at one time, he would divide these skilled soldiers between each of the four companies, and they would all work on a different destroyed bridge or pile of felled trees in the road at the same time. Normally, a move like this was seen as not prudent, as the Vichy troops might be able to destroy all of these companies independently. But it was considered a worthy risk, especially as few enemy troops had recently been spotted. Realizing how badly these various Allied troops wanted to reach the capital, Mother Nature decided to keep it raining. In fact, it had been raining this entire time. So the men were issued capes, which did very little to help with the rain. Adding on to that, the rain failed to chase away the malaria-filled insects. Now, the men had been given insect repellent, of course, but it was no more effective than the capes against the rain. But then the men soon discovered that the repellent was waterproof, so they used it on the electronics of their vehicles. As they say, needs must. And in a questionable move, D Company of the South Links soon found a few maintenance trolley cars along the way. And as they had Malagasy captured troops with them, these men were put to work, pumping the handle up and down, keeping the devices moving. The good news was that they were able to cover 30 miles a day for the next three days. The bad news, found out on the 23rd, while at Fanovava, was that the South Lanks, despite their trolley cars, were too late. The capital, Tananarive, had fallen. As far as defensive positions go, the capital was simply the bee's knees. The city itself sets upon a 4,000-foot-high plateau. To the northwest of Tananarive sits Mahitsi, and the area in between these cities is covered with machine gun nests, situated in older forts that had recently been strengthened. 
and there were other such defenses around the city. In short, Governor Annette could make life a living hell for the enclosing Allied troops, and the East Africans had to come this way. But the Governor General had no plan to fight it out in the capital. No, what Annette needed was time. Hence, a minimal force was set up to delay the attackers, while the island's Vichy leadership, plus all remaining troops, headed south. Again, this was not over. Halfway between Mahitsi and the capital is the Ivato airfield, and on a ridge overlooking said airfield was Annette's delaying force. But sensing they were near the end, the worst possible time to die, A and B companies of the King African Rifles snuck up on the French position, no matter that it was on a height, and captured a battery of two field pieces, even before the enemy knew they were there. And with a start like that, it was a foregone conclusion. The delaying force quickly surrendered. And now that no forces actively protected the city, the chief of the district met with Lieutenant Colonel John Francis McNabb, acting commander of the 22nd East Africa Brigade, who accepted his surrender. Not that it was over, for General Guillaume wrote to Vichy near the end of September, this was only the opening phase, that we are ready and determined to continue the fight with all the elements that remain. But that was the million-dollar question, wasn't it? How many more men did General Annette have? With the capital now taken, Brigadier William Alfred Dimi de Moline and the number 1 and 3 fighting groups of the 22nd East Africa Infantry Brigade marched into Tananarive. But the men quickly noticed that the Malagasy people were cheering far more passionately than expected. This was because the islanders were under the assumption that they would no longer have to pay taxes to the French. True enough, but only for the moment. But the Malagasy's happiness was nothing compared to the POW Lieutenant Colonel Simpson Jones, who had been in jail for the last seven months. As a part of the SOE, or Special Operations Executive, in late December 1941, he had been sent to Mauritius and then to the island reunion to recruit agents to operate on Madagascar. And everything had gone according to plan until the end. When leaving, his boat capsized, and he was rescued, but then captured. But now Jones was once again a free man, and would soon be Brigadier Lush's personal assistant. Soon, Lieutenant General Platt, GOC East African Command, arrived and set up his headquarters at Tananarive. And then his office sent out a list of rules for the civilians that can be summed up by saying, Go back to normal as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Do not give us any trouble, or we'll give you some trouble. To be sure, there were still men with guns walking around the capital, but now they were Allied troops, as Lieutenant Colonel McNabb and Number 1 Fighting Group became the Tananarive garrison. As for the radio waves throughout the islands, those were now controlled by a representative of the BBC. And though Lieutenant General Platt was on the island, it would be Brigadier Maurice S. Lush, Colonial Administrator, and Grafty Smith that ran Madagascar, well, the parts that belonged to the Allies. To all of this, Secretary General Monsieur Pouvien, who had been left in charge by Annette, 
refused to accept any British authority. He was respectfully placed in a jail cell. As for most of his subordinates, they didn't want to be incarcerated, so agreed to work with the Allies, but they made it clear that they were still loyal to Vichy. The Allied brass had no trouble believing that. The locals did not trust the British nor the French nationals on the island. It was an equal opportunity hatred. As for the Malagasy, the British understood that they were in a trap of their own making. They had not yet publicly stated their intentions towards Madagascar, so the people of the island thought that they would be taking over from the French, while the French thought that the British would give the island over to the even more hated Free French. And yet, London had a very good reason for being mum on the subject. Operation Torch, the landing of Allied troops in North Africa, had reached its final planning stages. And if London gave Madagascar to the Free French, then those in North Africa would rightly assume they were next, and thus fight even harder. London nor Washington needed this, so kept de Gaulle at arm's length, which displeased the tall French general, along with Foreign Minister Anthony Eden, who backed him. But Churchill deduced it was better to upset a few rather than an entire people that they were about to engage with. And as people are people the world over, soon Grafney Smith had a group of French and Malagasy people come to him and say, we have formed a provisional committee. Let us help you run the island. Now, Grafty Smith saw them coming a mile away. With the island's current leadership in shreds, these men hoped to position themselves into, well, positions of authority when things settled down and a new French high commissioner was chosen by somebody. Hence, Grafty Smith used this group to get information around to the islanders but he gave them no authority, and he kept them at arm's length as well. Either way, there was practically no one on the island that appreciated or even liked the British-led forces. And Annette did not help by putting out anti-British radio speeches from the city of Fayanat-Ratsoa, about 185 miles or 297 kilometers south of the capital. In fact, de Gaulle had more followers on the island than did the British. He had about 50 children, aged 15 to 17, and they let their feelings be known by painting slogans on the walls of buildings. And this was the old capital that Annette was currently in. But as long as the children stuck to slogans, none were arrested, or worse, by Annette's men. Now set up in the island's old capital, Annette planned on following Vichy orders and offering up continued resistance. But the next part will not be fully understood without understanding the hatred Vichy had for the British and the Free French. Besides the hundreds of years and dozens of war between the two countries, Paris never felt that the British had helped enough when the Panzers emerged from the Ardennes forest. Thus, was perceived betrayal stacked atop generational hatred. So, if Vichy had to be neutral during the war, again, their perception saw the lack of British support for one of the main reasons for this, then they could at least make sure the British Empire fell with them. For no one in Vichy really expected Annette to overcome the invaders and retain the island. 
However, that's not to say that Allied troops could not be tied down on this island and thus unable to help in other spots like Burma, India, or North Africa. And perhaps in that, the British read Allied positions could begin to become undone. Hence, due to Vichy, really a net, the 29th Independent Brigade was on the island when it was needed in Burma. And that being the case, the landing craft and assault ships were returned to Madagascar to one day carry away the 29th. But who could say when that day would come? For now, the men, material, and practically priceless shipping was being tied up, due to Vichy stubbornness. To wit, CNC India, General Wavell's offensive that he wanted to launch against the Japanese, while still being only in Burma, was delayed. The CNC had wanted to land on the Burmese west coast on Akyab Island and take their rather impressive airfields. As this was just below the Burma border with India, modern-day Bangladesh, it would have allowed the Allied air forces to strike in many different directions. Alas, it did not come off as hoped, and that can be laid at the feet of Annette, who, it has to be said, was only following orders, the same as everyone else. On a side note, all this delay allowed de Gaulle to keep yelling to the skies, I told you so, as he had proposed an invasion plan that would have taken Mahunga and the capital instead of Diego Suarez first thing out. Back to the war, as Annette had retreated south and still had a fair amount of island to retreat further into, this could go on for weeks, and Wavell needed the 29th Brigade Group. So, hoping to cut this short, on September 23rd, Lieutenant General Platt flew back to Diego Suarez Bay to talk with Admiral Tennant. Might it be possible, the Army officer asked, to land a force even further south than where Annette was now? and that way he would be trapped. It was a good plan, as it satisfied the objective and was relatively straightforward. But the Admiral had to deliver the bad news. The East Coast, it seems, was bad for landing, but the West Coast was much better. Why not land troops there and then come inland? Yes, the trek would be longer, but the trap would still be set. So, on September 25th, Two companies of the Pretoria Regiment, a section of engineers, and three armored cars sailed away from Diego Suarez Bay, protected by the HMS Birmingham with a destroyer escort. Their goal was Tulir, modern-day Toliara, located about 581 miles or 936 kilometers southwest of the capital. This flotilla reached Tulir on September 29th and radioed for the town itself there to surrender. Annette might have wanted any of the troops there to fight to the last bullet, but that's not what happened. The town, the Vichy administration, and any troops there surrendered without a fight. The Allied troops came ashore. Quickly, the town was secured which meant arresting the Vichy authorities and clearing out the closest roadblocks on the way to where Annette now was, about 180 miles or 289 kilometers to the northeast. Now that the trap was set, it was given to number two and number three fighting groups to push Annette into the hands of the South African troops that had just landed at Tulir. Problem was, 
Intelligence told the Allied officers that, one, Annette still had 14 companies somewhere out there and another five companies in a garrison further south. This could go either very well or not. It depended upon many variables, mostly determination, as most things do.